Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, your host, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Helen Cameron, with the co-owner alongside her husband, Michael Cameron, of Uncommon Ground, which I'm sure many of you have heard of because they are wonderful. They have been in Chicago for 30 years. And I'm really excited, Helen, because we've talked to a lot of people who are business owners and who have, uh, you know, entrepreneurs started different things here and around the city. And we seem to get a lot of people at the start of that. And so... To talk to someone who's been doing this for 30 years, I'm really excited. I think you must be a wealth of knowledge, and I'm just, I, I can't wait to hear it because we're all really excited around here. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for your time. No, well, thanks for having me, Nathan. Yeah. So as we were looking at, uh, so I've been to the restaurant a few times, and I know a lot of my friends have been, and it's a really unique experience. It's that, that rural experience here in an urban area. Mm-hmm. Um, a really all-inclusive one, and even more so than I realized that I've been there and I didn't even realize how much you all are doing. Um, but we really want to start at the beginning. That's, we always talk about the journey and what it was like to get to that place. And so take us back to the beginning of the partnership, not, not just of the restaurant, but the partnership of, of you and Michael and sort of when you met and what that was like and, and then if you ever imagined that this is where you would be today. No, I, I, no, not, you know, 33 years ago, I would not have known or imagined where we are today, but I certainly wouldn't have been surprised either, um, mm. you know, by where we've ended up. I have yeah, and- a, an awesome partner. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about that partnership when, when you met, mm-hmm. um, what was it like at that point and and sort of where were you at in life and and what was it like to to meet and then get to that stage of of actually becoming a partnership in life well mike and i met working um i was working at db kaplan's and he was a manager for the levy organization at the time uh he just finished some time at ravinia and then they moved him around so i got to work with him at db kaplan's but also uh at the cubs stadium um at, uh, you know, Comiskey, at the Chicago Stadium when the Bulls were playing, um, or sometimes when the Blackhawks were playing. So I would move around and they would move their management around as well. And I I got to know Mm -hmm. him pretty well working together. And then um, we ran into each other at a holiday party. And I had learned that he uh, recently became the general manager of the Chicago Theater when the, the theater reopened. Uh, of the food service. And so I was like, I would love to work there, you know, if you'll have me. And he's like, well, I need help modeling uniforms. Do you want to be one of the people to come help me with that? And I'm like, absolutely. 
And then afterwards, uh, you know, we ended up having dinner together and then we saw a movie and then it turned out he lived a few blocks away from me. So I gave him a ride home. And then uh, when we were saying goodnight, he laid a kiss on me that was quite memorable. <laughs> and, uh, and so from that moment, we were, we started dating um, and we moved in together in February. So we started dating in January, moved in together in February, and then wow. he proposed to me in April. So that timeline is yeah. impressive. Yep, super fast. Scary. <laughs> yeah, it was scary. It scared the living daylights out of me because I just didn't really uh, plan on getting married. That wasn't part of my life plan. I would have been fine just living together. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that was a little worrisome for me. And eventually, you know, I had this conversation with him, but he was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and I've always been an avid non-smoker. So that was a bit of a problem. I felt as though I would be committing my life to someone who is systematically destroying theirs. And mm. when I, when I told him about it, he pretty much decided to quit cold Turkey on that day. And he hasn't smoked since. Um, wow. And so when, you know, when he went through that and he, he just made that decision so immediately, uh, it really made me realize how committed he was, uh, yeah. you know, to, to wanting to be married. And, and I think that's what eventually led me to walk down the aisle. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, uh, that was quite a commitment, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, early, like really early on in this relationship, then you're learning a lot about, not just a lot about your partner, but a lot about someone who, you would eventually end up in business with that I think is really important because obviously the decision to compromise and just say, if this is that important to you, I'll do it. Uh, the ability to do it cold Turkey and to walk it out. And then also the passion to say like, I'm going to kiss this woman who I really like and see how she yeah. feels. And then hopefully it goes from there. And I mean, th there's a lot of stuff that you're learning about this person in such a short amount of time, do you feel like, I mean, were you, is that the case Were you learning a lot about him or are you learning a lot about each other and kind of how you would partner together? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, a constant learning curve really. Um, but the, the good thing that we had going, you know, we had a really great professional foundation to our relationship, you know, prior to sort of falling in love and this like-minded way of going about working in a restaurant. Um, and I think, you know, both of us, both of us are lifers, you know, we're, we're those people mm -hmm. who, you know, you, you're just enamored by this business and that's what you want to yeah. do with your life. And I think, you know, we, we both had that in common. And then, you know, after we got married, Mike became the general manager of a fine dining restaurant downtown called Michael Stewart's. And I went to work in the kitchen at the 95th. Um, I've, I had always been straddling front and back of the house in my restaurant time. Um, and then he just was fully in, into management and just kept, you know, going up the, the, the rungs of the ladder. And, um, and then eventually he became um, the food and beverage director at a small hotel. Uh, it was called the Richmond Hotel at the time. It's on St. Clair in Ontario downtown. So right okay. by Northwestern Hospital. Yeah. And it had this little French bistro called the Rue St. Clair. Um, it's, set, it's set 
sat about 100 people inside. It did food service for the hotel, and then it had a big outdoor area. And he brought music. He brought jazz there on the on the weekends. And um, eventually, he he basically convinced me to become the sous chef at the hotel because the chef there needed help. I didn't feel like I was qualified at that level at that time, but he's like, look, you know, I know you're going to do a great job. I know you're going to work hard. You know, I'll support you. The chef will train you, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to do this. And, um, so that's when, you know, I sort of got into a little bit more of the management end of things. And, um, then eventually, uh, the, the ownership of that hotel was French and they really loved the idea of having a husband and wife team running their restaurant. Um, and at the time they also weren't fond of the, the current chef. He was very American, you know, uh, more like an American country club type of chef, like his, his repertoire of food and so on was a little bit more on the American side and they wanted they wanted their menu to really be more traditional French bistro, like beyond what he was doing. And even though I didn't really have a lot of experience, I, I really wanted to be better, you know, in that arena. So I really worked on that. And um, so eventually I was 24 years old. I became the executive chef of a hotel kitchen. And I, wow. it was, it was so supremely challenging. And I think I worked like 90 hour work weeks. I mean, I was there virtually all the time. Um, you know, I would come home to sleep and then, you know, maybe take a half a day to like do laundry and, and that kind of stuff. You know, luckily my chef stuff was getting cleaned at the hotel. So, um, but we really worked hard. And after several years of really turning that operation around and making it really successful, um, we decided to move on and do our own thing. Of course, we didn't have any money. Um, we didn't own anything. We didn't have investors. Uh, <laughs> so we started with some help from my family and his family on a very small scale. Uh, we opened um, an espresso bar first in the uh, Century Mall on Diversity and Broadway. Okay. And um, after a few months of doing that, you know, we realized, oh my God, you know, this is not going to sustain us both, you know, with the types of professional challenges we're used to dealing with, you know, number one, yeah. and number two, just financially. Um, and so we decided we would look around for, you know, a space for a cafe. And we found one on Broadway and Roscoe and put a down payment, you know, first month's rent down. And um, <clears throat> then we're following up with that landlord and he sent us our deposit back and said, I'm sorry, I, I won't be renting to you. And it turns out that Starbucks took that location. <laughs> That's when they were just coming into the city. Right. So we were so disappointed and um, we were kind of broke. So I had coupons to go to Subway, you know, like buy one sandwich, get one free. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one day we were like, well, let's go get some sandwiches and then we can look around, you know, for another space. So we go to the corner of Clark and Grace and we park and right where we park is this little storefront that says for rent. And, um, you know, it was four blocks away from our apartment and in a, in a neighborhood that we kind of knew and understood. And, uh, so I went to get our sandwiches and then in the meantime, um, Mike decided we were going to call and, and see if we could see this space. 
and uh, it was at 1214 West Grace. And when we walked into that space eventually uh, to see it, it was somebody's apartment, um, but it was a storefront. And uh, my imagination, the minute we walked in there, I could just see our place. I could see it. I could see people coming and enjoying themselves and, you know, having good food and, and drink. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mike wanted to have entertainment and I wanted to have art on the walls. And I could just see all that stuff in this place. And we got really excited about it. And then we were able to, to rent it. And it ended up being, you know, a really amazing thing uh, and, a, and a favor that Starbucks did, a, did us by taking the Roscoe space because the space that, you know, was our original Uncommon Ground space at 1214 West Grace, we eventually were able to expand in 1220 West Grace. So 1214 was 1991, 1220 was in 1996. Okay. Then in, in 2004, we added the 3800 North Clark space. And, uh, and then in 2010, we were actually able to buy the building after almost 20 years of paying rent there. Wow. Um, and so then we added uh, another dining room in 2011 and the brewery uh, Green Star Organic Brewing in 2014. So we've had quite an evolution in that space. Um, and I'm really thankful that, you know, we were able to grow like that and then eventually, you know, own the building and have sort of control over our future. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, that has been a really, uh, amazing, you know, d difficult and, uh, you know, just really an amazing evolution, uh, that I, yeah. you know, looking back, I just really appreciate all the support we've gotten from our community, especially, especially now. Um, you know, we just had our 30 year anniversary party and it was the first time we actually had an event, uh, since COVID and, um, you know, I, am just so eternally grateful for all the support over all these years of our community, of all the musicians that have performed, all the artists that have shown their work and, you know, all the good people in our community that have supported us. It's, you know, uh, eternally grateful, huge gratitude. So I have like 7,000 questions and okay. all of what you just Absolutely. said, because there's a lot there, but yeah. let's start with this because, um, I always felt I, I served for about four years, maybe less, maybe more, but it was about four years. Um, and it was, I loved it. It was an experience. I, I worked at an IHOP in Champaign, Illinois, U of I, and uh, I worked from like Friday at, 11 p.m. till Saturday at 7 a.m. So the overnight Friday shift, which was, I've seen the nuttiest things ever. I'm sure you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I I went from that. I worked at a at a um, very touristy pizza place here in Chicago, uh, in the Loop, and I worked at a nicer Italian restaurant. And so it's just like three very different types of places and um, experiences. And because of that, I've always felt like Everyone should work in the service. Industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody Everyone should do it. Should Yes. I think that's a prerequisite yeah. for life. Well, and, and, I, and I'm, I, I assumed you would feel the same way because I, every restaurant person I've ever talked to has said that. Um, 
can you share why, what it is that you think people can learn from people who serve uh, or people who work in the industry or, or like I said, those retail industries in general, can you share what it is that you learned or what it is that you've learned from your staff that might help people? Well, you know, I think the reason why so many restaurateurs feel that everybody should work in service in some way is, I think it's a life skill, hospitality, kindness, um, listening. Uh, you know, these are all life skills that, it, you know, if, if you're able to sort of integrate and help people and serve them, um, you know, I, I think that you're more apt to be successful in life, right? Mm -hmm. you, you connect mm -hmm. with people, you listen to them, you care for them, you know, hospitality. I mean, that's a really big calling. It's a high calling as, as far as I'm concerned. I think I got a lot of my hospitality chops from my mother, who's like the ultimate, ultimately hospitable person. She was always wanting to feed people, you know, baking cakes and welcoming people in, into our neighborhood. And, um, you know, she worked at a country club in, in Long Beach in Michigan City. And, you know, everybody there knew her. All the members knew her because she took care of everybody and she knew certain people had certain needs, you know, and yeah. I think, you know, that's what makes the world a better place, right? It's a quality yeah. of life issue, I think. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're able to give, give good service, then you also appreciate other people who are serving you. Um, and I think that's the other side of the coin, you know, is to really understand what somebody in the service industry is going through and to be empathetic and understanding as well. I think empathy is one of those things where you didn't hear a lot about it before, but more recently, even in business is people are talking more about empathy. I've had more people come on the podcast in the last like year, year and a half and talk yep. about how they're learning empathy in relation to themselves, you know, giving yourself grace and, and taking time for yourself to, you know, the, the work-life balance, having empathy for their clients, and then teaching their clients to have empathy for their customers. And it's one of the things that it is a common theme, because I think when you share stories, which is what we do here on the podcast, is we just want to share stories. We want to share, you know, what people are doing. And so when you share stories, you learn a lot about empathy, because um, it's either something that people really want that they don't always feel they get, or it's something that they work on a lot in order to give it. And it's just not something that usually comes easy for a lot of people. And so for you, having these customers who come in who I know you treat them like family, I know you treat them like they are the most important people because not only are they driving your business, but they're but you're sharing experiences with each other. And right. so for you... I think when you look at empathy in terms of business, what does that mean for you? And how do you help culture that? How do you help cultivate it? Like, you know, just as you grow uh, basil for, you know, food, you, you, you have to cultivate that as well. And so what is that like for you when it maybe isn't something that has always been really focused on in the past? Well, I mean... <clears throat> You know, empathy is is such an important, I think, element in being able to 
sort of develop a concept, right? So for us, mm-hmm. we look at the restaurants as community centers. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. much more than restaurants, first of all. Yeah. Um, and there really isn't anything in the U.S. like it and probably not on the planet like it because we, we, we try to have something for everyone, right? So you're, tr- you're trying to take into consideration, you know, the population at large. And then in your little place, try to offer something that would make them feel comfortable and at home and happy. So down to earth service, really good quality food. So I look for local food, um, organic as much as possible. I grow a good amount of our own food on premise. Um, and I share, I share that with as many people as I can. And I try to educate people about it so that, you know, urban agriculture is something that will continue to grow and blossom, not just in Chicago, but in any urban center, you know, we have people who visit us from all over the world. Um, but in the menu offerings, you know, there are so many people with so many tastes and preferences and then dietary restrictions. Yeah. And, um, you know, over the years, it's been very important to me to a understand what's happening in the food world so that B, I can prevent buying any, any types of ingredients that I feel are not healthy. Um, I really try to stay away from, um, misery meat and poisonous produce. So, um, you know, I, I really take into consideration the animals that, you know, Mm. that we, that we use on our menu, you know, Mm -hmm. only grass fed Mm -hmm. beef, no hormones, no antibiotics, cows living in sunshine, they're healthy, they're happy, they've had a good life. And now they pass that good energy on to us. Same, you know, local chickens, no hormones, no antibiotics. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't want any unnecessary chemical additions into my food. I try to stay away from GMO products as much as possible. Um, you know, and I try to uh, buy as much as I can locally because I feel like we need to relocalize our food systems. So I'm, I'm looking at a much bigger picture. Um, and then on top of it, we add the sustainability piece of the puzzle. I certified with the Green Restaurant Association for five years in a row. It's a lot of work because you have to recertify every year. Yeah. Uh, each restaurant during that time span got to be the greenest restaurant in the U.S., um, according yeah. to the Green Restaurant Association. And we also certified and helped to create the Green Seal certification here in Chicago. And so I certified with them for two years. But, you know, our rooftop farm at our Devon location, which we opened in 2007, uh, has the first certified organic rooftop farm in the country. And then, you know, we have the certified organic brewery, which is the first in the state of Illinois. And one of only about a dozen or so in the whole country where we only brew organic beer, not just one type of organic beer, but all of our beer is certified organic. And we're buying local grain and as much as we possibly can, you know, any other ingredients that we need for the beer, but it's all certified organic. So there's no roundup on my wheat or on any of the grains that are in my beer. Um, so we, we think about, you know, serving community, like just well beyond waiting on somebody and, and giving them food and drink. We, we look at it from a much grander scale, but also, you know, community, includes a certain um, amount of culture, right? We have so many different types of people, you know, in 
near both locations. And um, so we have live music. We have, you know, local artists showing their work. And um, our menu kind of reflects, you know, a variety of dishes uh, being on common ground. You know, we can kind of seek out things from, from you know, ideas from all over the world, but we're using local food and, and um, sort of the idea of comfort cuisine to, to sort of ground things in our menu. And then, you know, we're seasonal because you want to bring in the things that are the freshest and closest to home. And so you're constantly changing your menu so that people who have dietary restrictions, they have choices when they come to us. You know, we make sure that vegans have interesting, uh, mm. delicious food, you know, vegetarians, meat eaters. We have, we try to have something for everybody. Um, and, you know, uh, and that's, you know, where sort of a, a greater sense, sense of empathy comes from, you know, uh, and making those connections to our guests. And I think that's why, you know, we've been able to succeed for 30 years because I think people yeah. appreciate the extra work. Um, you know, there's a lot of educating going on constantly about what's happening in the food world. Um, and, you know, and we, we really strive to be sort of leaders uh, in the arena of sustainability and urban agriculture and, um, you know, just be a great community-based restaurant. Yeah. Being leaders, um, being the first is, is really daunting, can be really scary, can be, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of different reactions to that. But for you, what does it mean to be the first certified organic restaurant in Illinois? What does it mean for you to be a leader in the urban agriculture movement? Because a lot of places now you go there and they say, okay, you know, we're, we're like this dish is organic or this dish is vegan or, you know, it's like mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to integrate that, but you kind of wonder what the motivation behind that is. Whereas when I, when I hear what you're saying, the motivation isn't like put as many things on the menu so you can serve, you can like get every kind of person in to get as much business as you can. But it seems to be a lot more of like, we care about the people who are going to step in the door. And so we're going to, we we're ready for you. We have something for you. And not only is it going to be like, we have vegan dishes, but we have vegan dishes that you're going to enjoy. They're going to be new. They're going to be different. They're going to be colorful. They're going to be, you know, you're going to have a lot of experiences here. And so for you, like, I mean, this, the, whenever you're the first, it could always be either really great or it could just fail. And like, you know, people could just keep going down the street to a chain restaurant or something. Mm -hmm. Not that chain restaurants are bad, but, um, but certainly what you're doing, there's a, a lot of level of risk involved in that. And so when you think about that or when you think about being the first and leading in that direction, how do you like look at that risk? And then what do you, what's the mentality for you and for Michael to, to take that on and to just say like, we're going to do it. And we believe that it's going to be successful because we care. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, being, having the first certified organic rooftop farm in the country was actually a surprise. Um, when we viewed the building originally, it was a, a cold day in February, but it was sunny and we brought a ladder so we could climb up to the, see the roof of the building. Cause we were interested in, in, you know, putting our second restaurant there and buying the building. So Mike was holding the ladder for me and I climbed up. And um, as soon as my eyes cleared the parapet wall and I saw this wide open space with a silver, you know, rooftop, 
the first thing that popped into my head, and I think about food all the time, but the first thing that popped into my head was a giant, you know, like heirloom red tomato, like red mm. ripe. You know, I just could see this. And so I, I looked down at Mike and I'm like, we could grow food up here. And I remember <laughs> him looking up at me with this like pleasant look on his face, like, okay. So then he climbs up. And in the moments that we were up there, we, we made the decision that if we're able to buy the building, two things are going to happen here. One is solar panels. Two is I'm going to grow food on this roof. And then, and then he's like, yeah, and we can, you know, we can have people dine up here. And I'm like, oh no, 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 no. Dining can be downstairs. There's a big parking lot. Um, so we could use, you know, a big chunk of that to create an outdoor cafe. I'm like, yeah. no, no, I want this to be a rooftop farm. Like, and this, this happened just, you know, we're just chatting and, and he's like, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, we should use as much of the space as we can to grow as much as we can. And, uh, and you know, that's why I'd want to use it. It's, you know, it's hard on servers running up and down stairs with yeah. big trays of oh, food yeah. and drinks. I've worked in a place like that before. So I, I knew that I'm like, no, I mean, we can have parties and events, you know, and do things on, on, a, on an easier scale up there, but, you know, so main dining downstairs, but then upstairs farming. And, um, and, you know, so good thing that we made that decision right from the get-go, because then we were able to buy the building. Um, and one of the big things that we had to do in that building was we had to dig the basement down another five feet and expand the footers of the building because, you know, Mike's 6'4", and literally in the basement, he was walking around bent over. And there were places where I could stand up straight, but not always because all the pipes and things, you know, the plumbing and the gas lines and whatever. So we knew we were going to have to do some major work to do that. And um, it was it was a risk buying the building and then having to do all this extra work. Um, but then we were able to get TIF funding. I think we mm. were like the poster child for what TIF funding <laughs> should do, um, which helped us purchase and rehab the building for the restaurant because we needed all that basement space for our prep kitchen, for our green room, you know, for big walk-in coolers, you know, all that stuff. So an office. Um, and uh, it was a big risk. And then eventually, you know, we had to have somebody build up the deck put in the solar, we did, we have solar uh, thermal up there that heats our water mm. and those solar panels provide us with about 10% of our energy every year at that restaurant. And, and after we did that and we bought the building at Clark street, we put the solar panels on at Clark street as well, because it was such an effective cost effective alternative energy source. Um, <clears throat> but we didn't quite find out that we were the first until we, in 2008, we, we finally, like by mid-July, had everything built out and the city gave us a $20,000 rooftop farm grant um, that came through sort of ComEd and uh, it, it was from the Department of the Environment, which helped us then complete being able to plant the farm the first year, which was really helpful. And, uh, and then someone asked, uh, the girl that was helping me with the farm, Natalie, and she was like, Natalie, is anybody else doing this? And both of us were like, I don't know. We don't know. So, uh, we checked in, you know, there are several certifying bodies in the United States. 
generally you go with someone who's in your region and but we we found we got a list of everybody and natalie called all of them and asked hey is anybody certifying any kind of a rooftop farming project and every one of them said nope we don't have anybody doing anything like that it's all farmland so that's how we found out that we were the first certified organic rooftop farm um, in the country and we really had an awful lot of support from the city getting through this and getting getting this done and um, another thing, you know, we're, we're hugely grateful for Mary, Mayor Daly was in charge at the time and he came and he did a ribbon cutting, mm. um, you know, because he wanted he wanted Chicago to be the greenest city in the country. And, you yeah. know, we were just, uh, you know, another group of people, you know, working towards that effort here in the city. So that was cool. And then the brewery, um, Mike always wanted to have a brewery uh, and it wasn't until 2014 that he was able to make that happen. And, um, you know, we knew there weren't too many people brewing organically. And, uh, and then eventually we found out that there was no organic brewery in the state of Illinois. Um, so when we finally certified through MOSA, uh, we ended up being the first in the state. And, you know, one of, uh, you know, a dozen or so all over the country that only brew organic beer. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I want to make sure I ask you about this because um, we've talked a little bit about things around this, and so I want to make sure we talk about it. But I mean, obviously, the the great thing is that uh, you know where the food comes from. It's organic. It's good for the body. You know, it's good. Good ingredients make good food, and so um, and unfortunately, I will drinks as well. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Can't, you can't forget the drinks. No, no. A lot of people are now tuning into what's in my food. Yeah. Sometimes they're not drink. really thinking about that. What's in my drink? You yeah. Know? It's a great point. Yeah. Um, one of the, the really tough things that I always wrestle with is, uh, you know, food deserts. And food deserts not just meaning, you know, the availability of grocery stores or restaurants in certain areas, but mm -hmm. the availability of healthy options for people who are in, especially the South and West sides here in Chicago. Um, but even sometimes in, in areas that you'd be really surprised where there just aren't good options to get uh, organic produce at a, at a good price and, and organic for whatever reason is so much more expensive than, regular stuff anyway in a lot of places but what as far as social responsibility for you for michael for the restaurant um what are your thoughts on that and then and then do you see that changing at all or do you see areas where there are um especially minority people or people who are in lower economic classes who have struggled to get really good options um do you see a shift in that um, or have you, have you been able to be a part of sort of helping that too? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. There's a lot of work going on in the city right now with numerous organizations that are doing great work. Um, mm -hmm. I was on the board of growing home for, for many years, which I consider a sister farm. They're the, the, the other organic farm, uh, in the city of, uh, of Chicago. And, um, <clears throat> they, they have a platform of job training. Uh, they're down in Englewood and for many years now they have been, um, they've been training 
people who have had problems with entry into the workforce to, you know, on how to grow food, on how to market it. Um, and now they've, they've also included some level of sort of helping people to learn how to cook food. Um, you know, there's a short of shortage of cooks. So to, you know, to have, uh, a place where you can, where you can learn a, how to grow, B, how to go do a farmer's market and sell this food or C, you know, potentially cook, um, you know, that's a great entry way, you know, into the working universe. Um, but to bring urban agriculture into places where there are food deserts then allows people to come and buy good, you know, freshly grown food at a good price. Um, and the farmer's markets that they sell at too, you know, they, um, they have ways where, uh, I forget the word for it now, but you know, there's a, <clears throat> it's not like, it's like food stamps where, you know, you can, you can buy a certain amount of fresh food for, for a very small amount of money so that mm, okay. you, you're able to have good fresh food. And, um, <clears throat> so that's, that's really happening in a lot of the food desert areas. And I think that that element is growing in the city as, as time goes on, like urban yeah. agriculture really needs to continue to grow and improve in any city because, you know, with the big drought that's going out out West right now, you know, there may be a time where we're not going to be able to rely on California and the West coast for our food. There's going to be a time where we're not going to be able to rely on Florida perhaps for, you know, a good amount of our food. And the Midwest has some of the most fertile land in the, in the world here. We should be growing a good measure of our own food here so that we're not, yeah. it doesn't have to travel. It does. It's just such an inefficient system, right? So if we could just grow more and more food in the Chicago area, you know, in vacant lots, in places where, you know, nothing's happening, let's make use of this, you know, um, and then by extension, another thing that I'm really advocating for is, you know, uh, having compost as mm -hmm. a, a third waste stream. You know, mm -hmm. we have our recycling, we have our landfill, but we really shouldn't be putting in any, you know, anything that's compostable um, into landfill. That's just like throwing gold away. You know, it's that's something yeah. that we should be using um, for fertility all over the city in the outlying areas. And so that's kind of a, a thing that needs to kind of come to pass as well over time. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of things developing and working together right now to keep improving and hopefully, you know, getting rid of some of the food deserts that we're dealing with here and yeah. then, you know, all over the country really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of the, uh, the rooftop farm project, you know, over these many years, we've had groups of interns that we've taught and trained how to grow, you know, through the course of the season, how to design a farm space, um, you know, how to project, you know, the seeds that you need to buy and then the produce that you're going to get at the end of a season and, um, you know, how to do this organically in containers and not in containers, you know. Uh, so some of our graduates, and at this point, we've had over 100 people that we've brought into the urban ag world. Some of those people have gone on then to work for, you know, Growing Home and other organizations that are doing this work. And so we feel like we're also sort of the entry level space where we're training people to get started in this arena and then move 
forward out into the world and, you know, continue that mission. So, you know, we feel like um, educating people is a really big part of our, our mission in this regard, you know, know where your yeah. food comes from, support your local farmer, grow some of your own, you know, uh, and support the restaurants and the places that are supporting our local people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's, um, I'd like to end with this question. It's sort of a two-part question, but I think it goes one into the other. And so um, one of the reasons and probably the reason that Uncommon Ground is so ecologically conscious is because that is the value of yourself and of Michael. And so um, what? Uh, why was it important that you sort of take your values and put them into this project and then alongside that, how have those values helped you to sustain what we've been through in the last year plus where we're all going through this pandemic together and everyone's just wondering, is that restaurant that I used to really like, is it still even there? Are they going to still survive? So how have those helped you in that situation as well? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we have been very idealistic and it's again it's just mike and i we're not this big organization um you know we've had a a lot of ups and downs over the years um and you know when covid shut us down so unceremoniously you know just before you know being open for 30 years i mean we were pretty devastated we um but we at a certain point we made a commitment to each other that we would do whatever we could to make sure that we survived this. So that was kind of a, a, a thing that I think we both needed to do together. And, um, you know, every day, you know, was our goal to just hang in there and do whatever we could. Um, but I think, you know, our, our idealism through many of our ups and downs uh, have made a huge difference in our ability to, to manage through these difficulties. I think number one, because we've developed this reputation that our guests appreciate and support, uh, they support that idealism. And so, you know, every time we thought we weren't going to be able to hang in there and we sent in, we sent out a big email asking for help. Uh, so many people, you know, ordered from us, um, and, you know, got food delivered or came and picked food up and always words of encouragement from them, you know, and, and, and appreciation and thankfulness, uh, you know, that, that was really kind of an, an amazing thing. Um, but also because, you know, we spent so much time developing the way we run our business sustainably, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot when I talk about sustainability is that, you know, a lot of restaurant folks, kind of feel like it's very expensive to be sustainable. And yeah, sometimes, you know, certain ingredients or supplies will cost more because they're organic or because they're compostable or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, the better product sometimes is a little bit more expensive. Right. But there are a lot of things that you can do that will save you money. You know, for instance, having solar thermal panels, it was a rather large investment, but we got a rebate and then we got a tax break. And in four years time, these panels were paid off, you know, by gas mm-hmm. savings. And then now it's just a constant savings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
we switched to all LED light bulbs at a time when one light bulb cost 50 bucks, you know, now they're less than 10. Yeah. Um, but at that time, you know, we spent several thousand dollars, but then we found that we were saving about $500 a billing period on, on electric because we, we switched to LEDs, not to mention the fact that many of the LEDs that we put in years ago are still the same LEDs that are giving us light now. So I haven't replaced, you know, 10 to 20 light bulbs at 10 bucks each. Um, so, you know, and then I put in hand dryers. Now I was never a fan of, 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 you know, hand drying. If I had a paper towel option, I would use that. But when I became educated through the Green Restaurant Association as to all these varieties of things that I could do to be more sustainable, I realized, well, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So I spent $3,000 to put hand dryers in it in six bathrooms at each restaurant, you know, three bathrooms at each restaurant. And <clears throat> I suddenly realized that I was saving $1,200 a month at each restaurant on paper towels. And then not to yeah. mention then manufacturing those and transporting them. And then the waste of the paper towels. Like I just took out this whole layer of carbon footprint um, mm. by making that maneuver. And, you know, the electricity was, you know, pennies in comparison. And so I was saving so much money by making certain changes. You know, we now have our water metered, right? I have, um, you know, the little uh, controllers on all my, uh, uh, my faucets. So, you know, I'm, I still have good pressure, but I'm using a lot less water and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm saving water. And for the farm, I have irrigation that drips right to the plants. You know, I don't waste water everywhere. So, you know, it's a matter of being efficient with your resources, right? And choosing the types of things that make a difference so that your company can be successful. And, you know, we opened our Devon location in 2007, and then we had that huge crash in 2008. And that restaurant is not in a main commercial zone. I mean, we're up in a yeah. neighborhood and we're near yeah. Loyola and it's not, you know, Devon isn't this big pedestrian, you know, roadway. I mean, it's a destination location there. And I've survived there for all these years through all this craziness, you know, because we are, we run efficiently, we run sustainably and the things that we spend our extra money on, it's meaningful. It makes a difference to people to have that better quality product or that item that has been well thought out, you know, to, to do, to be more sustainable, to kind of, in our way, address climate change and be better citizens. And also to be the example of what is possible. I mean, look, we're not a big restaurant group. It's just Mike and I and two restaurants and we've been able to do all this stuff. Right. So I kind of feel like there's no excuse for any, you know, any other <laughs> restaurant, like it can be done. You know what I mean? Yeah. It can be done. Yeah. We are living proof that it can be done. And we want to be the example of the change that we want to see in the world. And, you know, having, having done that all these years has really allowed us to succeed and to really connect with our communities and to feel that support firsthand, especially now after COVID is just one of the most remarkable things, you know, we have experienced. I mean, we really, my heart is just constantly full of gratitude right now. I am just so appreciative of the fact that we're still here 
you know, we're having a great summer season. Um, you know, people are coming back and we're able to hug each other and see each other again. And it just feels so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it does. I absolutely agree. Well, uh, Helen, if anyone who has heard this podcast and isn't like crazy inspired or energized to go do their thing, then I don't know, maybe they had it on mute the whole time because it's, <laughs> it's just been really great talking to you. And yeah. I'm really, I'm really just inspired by the, the leadership that, that you and Mike have shown and just the, the, you know, fortitude to keep going because that's, you know, where I, it's tough. We've been through a lot, not just this year, but I think in my, just in my lifetime, having gone through things like, you know, kind of started with 9-11 and there's just yeah. been a lot of things that have happened. You mentioned 2008 and the economy and now with COVID and it just seems like there there's things that come along that just make it tough. But to hear how you've just gone through all of these things and, and you've decided to keep going is, is really inspiring. And I mean, the restaurants are amazing, but I think that your just your your attitude, your personality, and your your it's just it's just contagious. So I thanks so much Very for sharing. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make, make, it, make all this good stuff contagious. It's yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's why we that's why we're here. Yeah, um, hopefully to share that. So. If you want to visit either of the two locations, they are at 3800 North Clark Street, and that is the home of their organic brewing. So I will definitely be visiting that one hopefully yes. very soon. And then there's also a location at 1401 West Devon, and that is the first certified organic rooftop farm in Illinois, in the U.S. actually. So kudos to both of you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, and I really hope that you continue it for another 30 years because I love it. And I know many of my friends who have been there, they all love it. So uh, we look forward to going once again. And we're so happy that we can go out, we can be safe, we can do the things that we need to do to um, keep not just ourselves, but everyone else safe as well. So please respect the staff as you go out and you celebrate getting to be together in the Chicago summer again. So Helen, I want to thank you so much for your time again. And thanks for joining us. It's been it's just been great. And um, we look forward to hearing more from you sometime down the road. Thanks, Nathan. And this is uh, another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Of course, we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. It's always great to interact with you. You can interact with us at Bridging Chicago on Instagram or Twitter. And of course, on our website, www.bridgingchicago.com, where you can listen to this episode in all of its various forms, as well as all of our other season four and prior episodes. So thanks again, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again. for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding. 